Come again to Hiawatha. We're glad you're here with us this morning. We have been now for about a year in the book of Acts, starting at the beginning, working our way through. We are almost done. We're in the last chapter. So today is not the last sermon. Uh, It's two sermons. So I'm preaching the first half of the last chapter this week, and next week, Chris will finish Acts. And then, what with it being Christmas time, we'll do a few weeks of Christmas stuff and then open mic for a little bit, and then we'll see what's after that. But we're going to near the end of Acts today. So a quick introduction before we get into today's passage. First, introducing me, my name's Jesse Splann. I'm an elder here at Hiawatha, and part of what that means is I get the privilege a few times a year of preaching, which I really enjoy doing. Uh, So obviously I'm doing that today. Very fun. Also, we want to give a quick introduction to Acts. Now, not to the book, it's 28 chapters. That's more than... I'm able to summarize in a few minutes. So after listening, if you're really that curious, you can go back and listen to things, various sermons that sound interesting. But just a quick introduction to our approach to Acts, how we preach it. So we view Acts as both history and theology. So what I mean by that is we're going to read today about a specific person, Paul, in a specific place, Malta, which is in the Mediterranean Sea, an actual island that exists and specific things that happened. And we believe that this is history. This is historical fact and it happened. There actually was a man named Paul approximately 2,000 years ago that was on a ship, ended up on Malta, and had the experiences that we're going to talk about today. It's not just a story that the author made up because it sounded cool and kind of fit with who God is and what he does. But we also believe it's theology. It's not just history. So it's different than reading a history textbook. And what we mean by that is we believe that God is ultimately the author of all things, that he's in control of all things. And so we believe that these are true things that actually happen. But just like a good author when they're writing a book is able to use various literary techniques, they're able to foreshadow and talk about something uh, in kind of veiled ways that's not going to come up for a while. Or They're able to develop themes that are important and then come back to those. They're able to reiterate those themes and those motifs. We believe God, as the ultimate author, does the same thing. So he's the one telling the story. And so we're going to see things in this passage that we'll read and we'll be like, huh, that sounds kind of like this other thing in a different part of the Bible. That's intentional. That's how God does it. But it is history. These are things that actually happen. So that'll make more sense as I preach. All right, Acts 28, verses 1 through 16. The title of today's sermon is Brought Safely Through. So I'll read the passage and then pray real quickly, and then we'll just kind of walk through the passage and point out some different things that are happening and uh, what Paul's doing and how we see Jesus in that. Jesus, God, the author of the story, Jesus is the main character of the story. Now, that's a good thing. You might think that's a bad thing because we want to be the star. You know, everyone does to some degree. We want to be the main character in our own story, but it's actually to our benefit that we're not. And we'll see that as we go on. All right. Acts 28, 1 through 16. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island, named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, The rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island. 
a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Petoliae. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they had heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. God, thank you for today. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for this recording uh, of this incident and what it shows us uh, both about Paul and about ourselves and most importantly, Jesus, about you. I pray, Spirit, that you would be guiding my words as I speak this morning, that you would speak to everyone here, giving them encouragement and exhortation uh, as they need it. Amen. All right, so very quickly, a little review. The passage starts out in verse 1, after we were brought safely through. Well, after what? If you were here last week, then you know, but if not, or if you forgot, a little bit of review. So, they have just come out of a shipwreck. In Acts 27, quotes from a few verses. So, they're, before they're about to sail, Paul comes up to the people in charge and he says, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. So it's wintertime, it was getting to the time where it was very dangerous to be sailing, and most ships would put in for the winter for about three months and not sail, so as not to be destroyed. But these people, they're thinking, well, I think we've got enough time, and then it says in the passage some favorable winds came up, and they thought, okay, we can make it, there's strong winds, we can make it through. Paul says, you know, this is a really bad idea, and if this happens, we're not only going to lose the ship and the cargo, we're going to lose our lives. But they don't listen to him, and they sail. And Paul, at this point, is a prisoner. So he can't just say, well, you take that ship, I'll wait three months for the next one. He has to go with him because he's been in prison. There are soldiers transporting him and other prisoners to Rome. And then the second paragraph there, so they go, a storm does come up, and this is a huge storm. And it says uh, around this point that they were out there for more than two weeks, And they couldn't see the stars or the sun. It was just storm cloud skies the entire time. And the waves got so violent, so the storm comes up, they think, okay, this is bad, but we'll just drop anchor and kind of ride out the storm. But they couldn't do that because they were worried about the ship breaking up. So basically, they just have to drift around the sea, not knowing where they are because they don't have the stars to navigate, hoping that they don't run aground and die. But they don't really know exactly where they are or what's going on, and they're, you know, jettisoning cargo and other stuff to keep the boat lighter, to keep from sinking, and it just keeps getting worse. And then near the end of this, before they, the ship gets destroyed, Paul stands up and says to them, Men, you should have listened to me and have not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. I like how he starts with an I told you so. It's like, remember before when I told you this was a bad idea and now you did it, I told you this was a bad idea. But he continues talking. He says, Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said to me, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So before they sail, Paul says, this is a bad idea. You shouldn't do this. If you do, we're going to lose the ship. We're going to lose the cargo. You're going to lose a lot of profit from that cargo going down. And we're going to lose our lives. But now at this point, and the ship is going to break up just a few verses after this in chapter 27, Paul says, so an angel of God came and appeared to me last night and said, don't be afraid, you have to stand before Caesar. So Paul knows now he can't die because God has said, you're going to appear before Caesar. Obviously, if Paul drowns in the sea, he can't appear before Caesar. And then the angel says, but not only you, everyone who's with you, these guards, these other prisoners, and your travel companion, as we read this passage, you might notice it uses the word we. So Luke is the author of the book of Acts. He's also the author of the gospel of Luke, with his name attached to it. And he was Paul's traveling companion. So he's with Paul on the ship, experienced these things. The angel says, not only you, Paul, but everyone with you is going to be saved. So originally, Paul said, don't do this. We're going to lose everything, including our lives. Then an angel appears, and Paul says, okay, we're still going to lose the ship. You're going to lose the cargo, but no one's going to die. 
And then it happens. Uh, they see an island come up as they're drifting. They're like, oh, so Paul said that as God said, we're not going to die. Let's run the ship aground on the island. So they try and do that and head towards shore. But it gets caught on a sandbar and then starts getting beaten by the waves and breaking up. And so then everyone who's able to swim jumps in and swims to the island. Everyone who's not, which is most of the people, wait for the ship to break up and then grab different pieces of wood and debris and float into the island. But everyone makes it. And in chapter 27, it says there were about 276 people on the ship. So Paul and Luke, his companion, and about 275 other people are saved from drowning. So they're brought safely through. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. All right, so think about this scene. So you're Paul or you're one of the other people on the ship. The ship has been beaten for weeks. You've been struggling to stay alive. Paul says right before the ship breaks up that no one had eaten for two weeks. What with, you know, the fear of dying and trying not to drown and have your ship break up. So they haven't even had time to eat. So they finally eat something. And then the ship breaks up. They're in the water. And this is not like being in a swimming pool that's heated to 80 degrees. The sea is cold. So they're drifting on word or they're swimming. They get to the island. They're cold. They're wet. And now what's it say? It's raining and the air is cold. So you come out of the sea. You're waterlogged. You're exhausted. You're cold. And then you've got weather that's not favorable. It's raining, so you're just going to get more wet. And it's cold, so you're not going to warm up. But the people on the island had a fire going. So they could see the ship out there. They see it start to break up. They can see people jump off. They see people are swimming in and floating in. They think, oh, you know, they're obviously going to be wet and cold. And then they're probably hungry too. They're probably going to be exhausted. Let's get a fire going. When they come on shore, they can sit by the fire. They can warm up. We can give them something to eat, help them out a little bit. So notice that Luke here, as he writes, calls them native people, which is interesting. Throughout Acts, Paul recently has had a lot of interaction with Jewish people. He was Jewish. And the Jews have treated him very poorly. They've tried to kill him. They've tried to have him arrested. They've incited mobs to try and like drag him out of buildings and beat him to death. They've tried to incite the Roman authorities to have Paul arrested and tried on these trumped-up charges and then executed. So Paul's been treated very poorly by his own people, by the people who were God's chosen people from the Old Testament, who should have been the ones who treated him well. And now you got, you've got these people, and Luke refers to them as native people, and in that, he's not just saying they're not Jewish, but they were natives of the island, and they're on an island. So these are people who didn't know who Paul was. They hadn't heard of him. They didn't know that he was this guy going around, that the Jews were trying to have him killed, that he's stirring up trouble everywhere he goes. They've never heard of him. They've probably never heard of Jesus based on, it's not explicit in this passage, but based on what we know about Malta at this time and various other writings, they probably had never even heard of Jesus. So this guy washes up, they don't know anything about these people. Other than that, they can tell they're prisoners because there's soldiers with them. So they know he's a prisoner, but they don't know who he is or what he's doing or what message he's proclaiming. It's funny too, Luke uses the word unusual kindness. Well, after the treatment he'd been getting from, Paul had been getting from the Jews and other people, any kindness would seem unusual. So, unusual kindness. So here they are. So they're by the fire. It's warm. No doubt this man is a murderer. This is a really interesting phrase. We're going to unpack this a little bit. There's some really cool stuff going on here. So you're saying by the fire, obviously you need wood to keep the fire going. So at some point, Paul gets up, gathers a bunch of sticks, throws them on the fire. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. So reptiles are cold-blooded. We know it was raining and cold out, so the snake's going to be pretty lethargic. So P Paul picks up the bundle of sticks. The snake doesn't really care. It's too lethargic to do anything about it. Paul throws the sticks on the fire. Suddenly heats up quite a bit. Now the snake figures it should move, comes out, bites Paul on the hand. A viper is a poisonous snake. So the people standing around, they see Paul get up, put some sticks on the fire. Maybe they see him jerk or something when the snake bites him. And then he pulls his hand out, and they can see his hand, and they see this poisonous snake hanging off his hand with its fangs in his hand. And so they see this, and they say to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. 
Though he's escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. It's like, ah, we know he's a prisoner because of the ship he was on and the guards he's with. And look, he must have been a murderer. So justice demands that he dies. But the sea didn't get him. He managed to escape it. But justice won't take that. Justice will not let him get away. So justice has the snake come and bite him, and now he's going to die. Now, what's really interesting about this is the native people's statement is actually partially true. Paul is a murderer. Now, if this is your first time here or if you're not real familiar with the Bible, you may have heard of Paul. St. Paul, our capital city in Minnesota, is named after him. And you might think, oh yeah, Paul, he was that guy, like, he knew Jesus and believed in him and went about doing these great things. He taught some stuff and did miracles, and now in the Catholic Church he's a saint. I'm not exactly sure what that means, but I think it's a good thing. So yeah, he was probably a pretty good guy, went about doing pretty good stuff. Paul was actually a murderer. So, from earlier in the book of Acts, Acts 26, so Paul has been on trial by the Romans at various points and giving his defense over and over and basically telling the story of like, who, here's who I was, here's what happened and how Jesus kind of encountered me and what that did and changed. And so he's telling this story over and over and giving different nuances, showing different perspectives. So early in Acts 26, as he's given one of these defenses, he's talking about himself before he encountered Jesus for the first time and what he was like. And he says, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison, saints being Christians, after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So this statement is partly true. The natives are partly right. Paul was a murderer. Now, you might read this and think, well, it doesn't say he actually killed anyone with his own hand. But at this time, under both Jewish law and Roman law, the fact that he's standing there casting his vote, there's one incident early in Acts where there are people killing a Christian, and Paul's the one who's kind of holding on to their jackets. It would be like now if you were going to do it, and you'd be like, here, hold my phone and hold my wallet so they don't get bloody or broken while I'm beating this guy to death. Paul's the one doing that. So in doing that, he's giving approval and saying, yes, I'm not going to stand in and stop this. I'm not doing it with my own hand. But legally now, I am responsible. I am a murderer of this man. And not only that, but he's persecuting people, even to foreign cities. Now, Paul, at this point, as he's giving this account, at that point, he was not a Christian yet. And he was part of a religious Jewish sect called the Pharisees. And they were very strict about different laws, like with food and things like that. What made a person clean? What made a person dirty? And you didn't want to be dirty. And so there were certain foods they could eat and couldn't eat. There were certain places they could go and couldn't go. Certain people and types of people they could and couldn't interact with. So going to foreign cities is a big deal. He so hates Christians, he so wants to see them dead, that he's willing to go to a place that as a Pharisee will be extremely difficult for him. There will be a lot of the local food he won't be able to eat. There will be places he won't be able to go. He'll have to be careful about what he touches, who he interacts with, where he stays. There are places he won't be able to stay. But this is what he's doing. Paul was a murderer. It's a true statement. Now, as their statements go on, they get less and less true. So let's look at the two other pieces of that. Second, though he has escaped from the sea. So the natives, they say, oh, this is what happened. He must be a murderer. Now they're correct about that. Then they say, okay, he's escaped from the sea. Obviously, we see him here on shore. He's by the fire. He didn't drown. Now this is partially true because Paul was in the sea in the shipwreck and he came out of the sea, but he didn't actually escape from the sea. Remember in verse 1 of this chapter, it says he was brought through the sea. So there's a difference. Escaping from the sea, it's just kind of chance or happenstance. Like he should have drowned, but he managed to weasel his way out of it. He managed to grab a piece of wood floating by. The waves were just calm enough that he was able to swim through without drowning. But that's not how it happened. Remember from the intro at the beginning when I read from Acts 27 and from the beginning of uh, the first verse of this chapter, The angel of God said to Paul, Don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. Behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. And then it says, We were brought safely through. So this isn't chance. They didn't escape the sea. They were brought through it. 
God made a promise. He said, this is what's going to happen. And it happened. So it wasn't Paul's doing that got him out of the sea. It was God's doing. God was the one who brought Paul and Luke and all the other, others with them out of the sea, kept them from drowning. They were brought safely through. They didn't do it themselves under their own power. It was something God did. And yes, he used things like the ability of some of them to swim and the wreckage of the ship to float in on. But God was the one who brought them safely through. So it's partly true. They came out of the sea, but it's not completely true. They didn't really escape from it. They were brought through it. And then finally, justice has not allowed him to live. Now, this is actually a big problem because Paul is a murderer and God is a just God. God says at various points in Scripture that he is just, that he hates injustice, that he punishes injustice. And murder is something that was unjust. I mean, just in general, most of us would probably agree murder is an unjust thing. But even if you thought, well, what about that time? Yes, murder was thought of as unjust. And under Jewish law, murder was punishable by death. And one of the things God said, no, you may not do this. This is sin. This is wrong. So how then can Paul be a murderer and still be alive? How can he be standing on the island of Malta? How could he even be alive to get on the ship unless God has now become unjust? But if God's become unjust, then God isn't who he says he is. And that's a whole slew of other problems. So how do you reconcile that? How do you have it that Paul is a murderer and God is just, but Paul still lives? The answer is Jesus. So in Romans 3, Paul, a book he wrote after he was in Rome, so uh, sometime during the two years that he was living in this house he lived in, once he got to Rome, he wrote the book of Romans. And in that, in chapter 3, he's writing about various things, and he gets to about verse 20, 23, and he writes, everyone's a sinner. All people have done wrong. And he doesn't say all you people. Everyone. Paul has done wrong. I've done wrong. All of us have sinned. And he says, that's a huge problem, because God is just and righteous. So what does God do with that? He has to destroy sin, so he has to kill us. But we're alive. How is that possible? And he says the answer to that is Jesus. So we sin, we deserve punishment for that. But Jesus comes, who did no wrong and deserved no punishment, and takes that punishment from us. So Jesus is punished in our place. And so Paul explains that and says, okay, this is how this happens. Jesus comes, he dies for us. He's raised from the dead, which is like God giving a stamp of approval saying, yes, Jesus, your death is sufficient to cover all the sins of people who have sinned. Your death is sufficient to fix this gap that exists between me and my holiness and people and their sinfulness. And then Paul writes in verse 26 that God does this partially so that God can be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So how is it possible for Paul to be a murderer, God to be just, and Paul to still be alive? The answer is Jesus. Through that, God is just because he punished Jesus. So he did punish the sin. So justice is satisfied. But God is now able to justify, to make just, those who are unjust, which are all of us, because of what Jesus did. So that's how that works. That's how Paul's still alive. Paul in this is a picture of all of us. All of us are murderers. I'm a murderer. Now, I've never actually physically taken someone's life. Most of you are probably sitting here thinking, Jesse, that's not true. Like, yeah, I've done wrong, but I'm not a murderer. I never killed anyone. Jesus says in the Gospels, you've heard it said, don't kill people. But I say to you, have you ever hated someone in your heart? Have you ever said to them, you fool? Which basically at that time was like swearing at them, not just saying you fool like you're an idiot. Jesus says, if you've done these things, you are a murderer. Because in that moment, in your heart, your desire was their harm. Your desire was to destroy them. And you didn't actually kill them, and that might be for various reasons. Maybe you didn't have the means, or you weren't able to, or maybe you just didn't feel the need to bring it to that point. Or maybe you really wanted to, but you were afraid of the law or the consequences. You didn't want to spend the rest of your life in jail, so you didn't. But Jesus says, in God's mind and in God's sight, it's the same thing. Obviously, the earthly and physical consequences of those are very different, 
But it's the same evil. It's the desire to destroy. It's the desire to kill. And we've done that. I've done that. I am a murderer. Don't think because I'm standing up here preaching that I'm better than any of you. I'm not. Don't think Paul, because he's Paul. He's the Apostle Paul. He's Saint Paul, that he's better than any of us. He's not. And he says to himself, I'm not just saying that. In another part of Romans, he says, I'm chief among sinners. He's like, I'm the worst sinner there was. I was persecuting God's people. I was trying to destroy the very work that God was doing. But Paul is a picture of all of us. But he's not just a picture of us as a murderer. He's also a picture of us as one who's justified through Christ. All of us have done wrong. All of us are murderers. But for all of us, that justification through Jesus Christ is available for free. Nothing you have to do for it. Those who believe in Jesus are justified. Jesus paid the price. Jesus paid the penalty. Jesus took the punishment. That we never could. The cost, what we owed God, was so big, it was infinite. You can't pay that. But Jesus could because he is God. And so he could pay an infinite cost. And we receive the benefit of that. Paul is a picture of God. And that is how Paul and that is how us can be evil and still live. And not just live and kind of survive and get by, but go from being God's enemy to his friend. And not just his friend, but his family member, his child. Go from being one God is working against to one that God loves. Did you know that God loves you? It's easy sometimes to think of God as just, it's like, yeah, he's God, he's powerful, he does all this stuff, but he loves too. His desire is not to destroy, but to save. All right. But that doesn't happen. They say, oh, justice hasn't allowed him to live. He's going to die. But he doesn't die. Paul, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they'd waited a long time and saw no misfortune came to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. So I like the fact that after they've seen people coming in, they start the fire, they've been helping them, they've showed them unusual kindness. They see someone get bit by a snake, But the reaction isn't, oh, we should help him. It's like, okay, so let's take bets. Do you think he's going to swell up first or is he just going to fall down dead? What's going to happen? It's like, well, I'll go with swell up. Well, no, he hasn't swollen up yet. I think he'll just keel over and die sometime. So, as I said at the beginning, things that happen now should remind us of things at other places in the Bible. And if you're at all familiar with the Bible, Verse 5, where he shakes off the creature into the fire and suffers no harm, getting bit by a snake and shaking it off, might sound a little familiar. You might think, you know, this idea of like a person and a snake and the snake wounding the person and the person killing the snake and destroying it, that sounds kind of familiar. I feel like I've heard that before. You have. It reminds us of two things. It reminds us of an incident in the Garden of Eden back at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis, one of the first couple chapters. And then also, ultimately, reminds us of Jesus and the cross. So, from Genesis 3, so this is the chapter you've got Adam and Eve, a snake comes that we learn from other places in Scripture is actually Satan possessing this snake. And the snake comes and is like, hey, did God tell you not to eat that fruit? You should eat that fruit, it'll be fine. God's just jealous. He doesn't want you to be like him. And when you eat it, you're going to be like him. So go ahead and eat the fruit. And then they look at it. They're like, yeah, the fruit looks pretty good. We'll try it. They do. And then God comes. He's like, what have you done? You ate the fruit that I told you not to eat. And now you're going to die. And then God goes and he curses Adam and he curses Eve and he curses the snake for what they've done. And so this uh, verse here is part of the curse God gives to the snake. So the Lord God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So there's going to be this mutual bruising that happens. But I think you'd all agree that getting bruised in the heel is a lot less severe than getting bruised in the head. If someone whacks me in the heel with a metal bar, that's going to probably do a lot less damage than someone whacking me across the head with that same bar. So the snake bruises. And that happens here. Paul gets bruised, not on the heel, but the hand. He gets bit by the snake. It's painful. But what happens to the snake? He shakes it off in the fire and it gets destroyed. The snake gets bruised in the head. Some translations say, he shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
So there's pain that happens on both parts, but it's much more severe one direction than the other. And so we see that. And this isn't just something Luke writes. He's like, oh, this didn't really happen, but this would fit really well. And then people will think of this. No, this happened. God orchestrated this to remind us of this. But not only to remind us of Eden and what happened there with Adam and Eve, but ultimately to remind us of Christ. Satan comes to Christ before he dies. Christ goes to trial. He's put on trial. He's condemned to death. After a trial that's basically like a show trial, they call all these witnesses and it says no two of them could agree. So one person gets up and is like, oh yeah, Jesus did this and should be put to death. Then someone else gets up, contradicts the first one, says something else. Someone else gets up, contradicts them both. And it says none of the two witnesses agreed. Also, the way they did the trial was actually illegal under Roman law, where it happened and when it happened and kind of the progression of how it happened. But it happened. And Jesus gets crucified and he dies. And Satan now thinks that he's struck Jesus' head. He's like, yes, I beat God. Jesus just died. But Satan doesn't know that he didn't strike Jesus' head, he only struck his heel. Jesus says in the Gospel of John chapter 10, he says, I have authority to lay down my life and I have authority to take it up again. He's, Jesus says, I am going to die. But this isn't happening against my will. I have the authority to do this. I'm laying my life down. No one can take it from me but I can lay it down and I'm going to. But God has granted me the authority to raise it up again, to take it up. I'm going to lay down my life and die, and then I'm going to raise myself from the dead. So Satan sees Jesus die and he thinks, aha, the head strike, beautiful. But then Jesus says, ah, but wait. And he rises from the dead. And then Satan sees that all he did was bite Jesus' heel. He hurt him, but he didn't destroy him. And Jesus raises from the dead and it says, again in John, after Jesus rose, then in doing so, he destroyed the power of the devil, the power that Satan had over people to influence people that's destroyed. And so Jesus crushes Satan's head. He strikes his head and bruises his head. So we see this. Paul shakes the snake off into the fire and suffers no harm. In the same way, Jesus shook off Satan shook off death, rose up, and suffered no harm. And we, who believe, will have that same experience. Physically, we will all die someday. But beyond death, there is Christ. And just as Jesus rose from the dead, so will we someday. So they see this happen. They're like, okay, maybe we were wrong. We thought this guy was a murderer. He's not dying. That's obviously not true. He must be a god. When they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. Now, they've got, biblically, some incorrect assumptions here about what it means to be a god. Some of the same ones that we might have at various times. So look at what they think it means to be a god. It means no misfortune comes to you. He didn't die, he's not hurt. I mean, he's got a snake bite that's probably painful. But no harm has really come to him. So he's a god. They were influenced by the Roman and Greek gods and in the Roman pantheon of gods. That's how it was. You had gods that were these supernatural beings, kind of like people, but stronger and better. Most of them were invincible and eternal. Not all of them, but a lot of them. And so they couldn't be killed. So they could kind of go about doing whatever they want. They could help people or hurt people or use people for their own means. And people might not like it, but they couldn't really do anything about it because you couldn't really kill a god. So they see Paul not dying. He's like, oh, he must be a god. Come to us in human form. Now, they're wrong. Paul's not a god. But it'll be interesting to see as we move forward in the passage how Paul is doing things that are like what Christ did and how he's kind of a picture of Christ and a picture of God, although he isn't. But right here, their idea that no misfortune comes to God is completely contrary to the biblical idea. In Isaiah, in the Old Testament, prophesying, talking about what's going to happen to Christ in the future when he comes to Jesus, it says, but he, Jesus, ultimately talking about Jesus, Jesus was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. God had the greatest misfortune possible come to him. The native people's idea here is totally reversed. 
their idea, oh, he's a God. No misfortune will come to him. Nothing can hurt him. No, it's exactly the opposite for Jesus. He comes and suffers the greatest misfortune that could possibly happen. He dies. But he dies as someone who is totally innocent. The only person who has never in any way deserved death, never done anything deserving of death. And he dies. And he doesn't just die like he's beheaded or he gets sick or dies in his sleep. He's crucified. He's nailed to a piece of wood, hung up naked, and eventually drowns in his own bodily fluids. An extremely, extremely painful way to die. The phrase excruciating, if people ask about pain and you say it's excruciating, excruciating means of the cross. So you're saying this pain is like being nailed to a piece of wood and hung up there. That's how painful it is. It's excruciating. God had the greatest misfortune come to him, Jesus' death on the cross. But look at what we receive through that. He gets the chastisement, we get the peace. His wounds bring our healing. He's pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. What we deserved, he takes. And the benefit that at that moment he does not receive in death, we receive. He gets death, we get healing. He gets chastisement and punishment by God, we get peace. He has the greatest misfortune possible come to him. And we receive the benefit of that misfortune that he endures. So Paul is not a God. And their idea of what a God is, is off. But, in verses 7 through 10, so in the previous section we saw that Paul is a picture of us. Both the bad side and the good side of that. The discouraging and the encouraging. The offensive piece of, you've done wrong but the encouraging piece of, but there's a solution to that. There's movement that's possible from God's enemy to his child. From dealing with his anger to embracing and experiencing his love. That is what he desires for you. Now, verses 7 through 10, we're going to see Paul as a picture not of us, but of Jesus. So in the neighborhood of that place on Malta were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, The name Publius actually means popular. So it's like, "Mm, is that your actual name or is that the name you gave yourself when you became chief? I'm Publius. I'm the popular chief. Everyone likes me. Who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed and placing his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. So, Paul here, he's in Malta. He hears that the chief's father is sick, goes, prays for him, and heals him. People hear about this, they're like, hey, this guy that we thought was a murderer and wasn't, and then we think is a god, maybe, he healed this guy who was sick. So, everyone else on the island who's sick comes to him, and Paul heals him. If you've read at all any of the Gospels or or are familiar with any of Jesus' story when he was living on earth before he died and was raised from the dead, this should sound really familiar. Because this is a typical pattern of what it looked like for Jesus as he was going about. He would enter a town, he would preach and teach them different things, but also he would heal people. And he'd heal a few people, word would get out, and entire towns would come to him for healing. All the sick would come Those who could walk would walk to him. Those who were paralyzed or lame or other things would be carried by friends. And at various times, Jesus would be teaching like in a marketplace or a house, and the crowd would just be crushing in on him, people wanting healing. There's one time where Jesus is in a house teaching and healing, and people hear about it, and the crowd is so great, people can't get in anymore. And there are some people who bring their friend who's paralyzed, and they're like, I know what we'll do. We'll go up on the roof. Roofs at that time were like mud and stick, basically, thick layers of mud and stick. They're like, we'll tear the roof off the house and lower him down. So Jesus is in there teaching, healing people, and all of a sudden, like, there's straw falling down, there's mud coming down. Then someone just comes lowered through the roof and dropped down in front of Jesus for healing. Paul is doing the same thing. He's healing people. Now, that incident of Jesus I just mentioned, so that guy gets lowered down, and Jesus looks at him, and everyone's like, oh, Jesus is going to heal him, but he doesn't. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And people are like, okay, 
that's weird, one, because only God can do that. And two, like, that's great, but that's not really what he wanted. We were hoping you'd make him walk, and could you maybe do that? So Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And then he looks around and he says to people, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? Not which is easier to do, but to say, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. If there was someone sitting here in a pew paralyzed, I could walk down to him and say, your sins are forgiven. Easy to say. Because how can you measure it in the moment? How do you know if it actually happened? But if I walk up to this person and say, your legs are healed, get up and walk, and they stand up and try and walk and fall over, well, that's easily measurable. Then you know, no, Jesse, you're a liar, or you're crazy, like that didn't happen. So Jesus says, which is the easier one to say? The one I just said. But so that you know that I have the power to do the thing that's harder to do. Forgiving sins is harder to do, but easier to say. And Jesus says, so that you know that I can do the hard thing, I'll do the easy thing. I'll heal him. Jesus doesn't just heal people in the Gospels because he's kind and he cares about people. He is kind. He does care about people. But ultimately, he does physical healings to prefigure the spiritual healing that would happen when he died and was raised for the dead. No matter what disease a person deals with, whether dysentery, like in this passage, the flu, cancer, HIV, like we were talking about earlier with the Aliveness Project, there are horrible diseases out there. Terminal diseases that can last for years and cause incredible pain and degradation of the body and the mind. But for all of those diseases, there reaches an end point. Eventually you die, and then the disease is no longer an issue. The spiritual disease of sin is more serious because it lasts beyond death. And there's only one cure. Jesus is the only cure for that. His death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave is the cure for our sin. But that cure is 100% complete. Sin is never going to mutate into a strain that Jesus' death and resurrection doesn't cover. It's never going to get immunity to the cure of what Jesus offered. His cure is complete. It's total. It works. It lasts forever. But Jesus does care about people. He does care about the physical. He heals And so Paul here is healing as a picture of that and saying, probably, as I'm healing you physically, let me tell you about an even bigger healing you need that you might not even be aware of. Let me tell you about spiritual healing. Let me tell you about sin. Let me tell you about how much Jesus loves you, how much God cares for you, that he gave his own child, that he gave his son Jesus Christ to die for you, to heal you from your sin. So he does that. And notice the order of operations here. In verse 10, they honored Paul greatly and his companions, and they gave them all the stuff they needed. They had lost all their supplies, so when they're going to leave, they load up their boat with food and whatever else they need. But notice all that comes after the healing. Paul doesn't come to them and say, now I've got the power of God and I can heal you, but we're going to have to make a deal first. If you give us this stuff, I'll heal you. Or if you honor us greatly. No, Paul heals first. What they do is not payment for something they want to happen. It flows out of something that already happened. And that's how it is with Jesus. You might think today, oh yeah, Jesus sounds kind of great, but I've got all this stuff, like I'm totally messed up, or I don't know the Bible very much, or I've never been to church before, or I don't go often. You might think there are things you have to do before God will help you. That's not true. God comes to us helpless, and saves us. He doesn't do it because of what we do for him. He does it because we can't do anything for him. And then afterwards, there are things we do, but those are not things we do under our own power. It's God doing it through us. So if you're here this morning, don't think for one second, well, this sounds great, but I'm so dirty. I'm so messed up. He could never cover the things I've done. He can, and he wants to, and he knows it. He's not surprised. He'll never be like, oh my goodness, I didn't know you'd done that. That's really bad. I'm going to have to think about that for a minute. No, he knows. He wants to heal you. We've all done horrible things. I've done horrible things. And God saved me not after I had done things for him or come to him or made deals with him. He just saved me. And now there's gratitude that flows out of that. And now it's not dependent on what I do. So I don't have to keep doing certain things to maintain that. It's like being in love. 
Who wants to be in love with someone that it's like, well, I'm kind of attracted to you and I think I might love you, but first you have to do these things for me and then you have to keep doing them. It's like, that's great. Even if you do it, then you'll always have this pressure in the relationship of, oh man, if I mess up, they might stop loving me. And we think about God that way so often. It's like, oh, I know he loves me, but oh my goodness, I just messed up again. I just did this thing or thought this thing or whatever it might be, or I didn't do this thing. But that's not how it is. God doesn't love us because of what we do. He loves us because of what Jesus did. And what Jesus did is complete. It's done. And it's sufficient. And it covers all the evil we have done and will ever do for all time. Paul is a picture of Jesus here. Also, another way he's a picture of Christ, it's interesting in verse 7 the way Paul or Luke words it, where he says, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island, which is kind of this tongue-in-cheek way to say it, because actually Publius, as the chief of the island, owned all the land on the island. So when he says, yeah, there was some land around here that belonged to him, it's like, yeah, it's all the land on the island. He owns it all. It's all his. And so the people... In verse 10, what do they do? They come and they bring supplies and gifts to Paul and his traveling companions before they leave. But what stuff are they actually bringing? They're bringing stuff that belongs to Publius because he owns everything on the island. And he's the chief man on the island. So instead of giving these things to Publius, instead of honoring him and supplying him with what he needs, they give it to Paul. They find Paul worthy of greater praise and honor than Publius's. And Paul's a picture of Jesus in this. Jesus is worthy of greater praise and honor than anyone else, than me, than any of us, than Paul. Because what Christ has done is greater and more worthy of praise. What he's done for us is something that no one else can ever equal. And thankfully, no one else ever has to equal. Paul's a picture of Jesus. So, God brings them safely through. For a whole bunch of chapters about half of Acts, Paul has desired to go to Rome, and he hasn't been able to. He's tried to go, and various things have happened. Sometimes God has said, no, I want you to go here first and tell these people about me, or no, you need to go here first, or no, you can't go now because there's this plot, and they'll kill you on the road if you go, so you have to stay here for a while, and various other things. Shipwreck delayed them for a little bit here. But, verse 11, after three months we set sail on a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, uh, if you were here last week, you might remember the ship that they were on that got shipwrecked was also a ship of Alexandria. So as they're getting on, they're probably like, well, I hope we have better luck on this ship of Alexandria than we did on the last one. With the twin gods as a figurehead. And then they make this circuit, and you get down to verse 14, and so we came to Rome. A little bit anticlimactic after all the chapters we've been waiting to get there. It's like, oh, I guess they're here. God brings them to their destination. God promises Paul, you're going to stand before Caesar. Caesar's in Rome. You're going to get to Rome. And God does it. He fulfills it. God is able to see things through to the end, to completion. We all can think of times where we've failed to see something through to the end for a lot of different reasons. Some good reasons, some bad reasons. Maybe we got lazy and just didn't do it. Maybe we got so sick we were unable to complete it. Maybe circumstances changed and something we thought we would be able to do, we weren't able to in the end for whatever reason. God says this is what's going to happen and it happens. He's able to do it. So when God says to us, I love you, and this problem of sin I have fixed, believe that Jesus is the solution to this. It's going to happen. And when Jesus promises, someday you're going to be with me, just like I rose from the dead, you too will rise someday and be with me forever. It's going to happen. Just like God brings Paul to this final destination of Rome, God is able to bring us all to the final destination of his presence. Verse 11 there. It says the twin gods is a figurehead. This is Luke kind of taking a little jab at the Roman pantheon. So the twin gods were Castor and Pollux, two Roman gods. They were twin brothers, and they were regarded as the patron gods of sailors. So if you were a sailor and you went out on the water, you would pray to them or offer sacrifices to them, hoping they would protect you. So the last ship, also of Alexandria, didn't work out so well. Luke's way of saying, all right, Castor and Pollux, where were you when our ship was going down? Where were you in the storm? 
It wasn't you that brought us through, it was our God, the God that Paul serves. He's the one who brought us through. He's the one who brought us safely through. Where were Castor and Pollux? Nowhere. Paul comes to Rome. So, this is basically the end of Acts. Next week we're going to see it. Paul is in Rome and some various things happen. But the journey is complete. He's gotten where he wanted to go. But, this is not all that God has brought Paul through. He hasn't just brought him through a shipwreck and being on an island, meeting people who were favorable as opposed to most of the other people that Paul has met who have not treated him favorably. Throughout Acts, God has brought Paul through a lot of things. So we're going to take a very, very brief, incomplete look at some of the things that God has brought Paul safely through from Acts 9 when Jesus first meets Paul as Paul is on his way to kill Christians, Jesus appears to him on the road as Paul's traveling. Transformation takes place. Paul sees, oh my goodness, you are the Son of God. You are the Christ. I believe. And then we're going to see from there, so from Acts 9 through Acts 28, these are some, not an exhaustive list, of the things that God has brought Paul safely through. A plot to kill him in Damascus. People seeking to kill him in Jerusalem. Persecution in Antioch that eventually got him driven out of that region. A plot to stone him in Iconium. An attempt to worship him as a god in Lystra. Actually getting stoned in Lystra. So in Iconium, people try to have him stoned. In Lystra, it happens, but they don't do a good enough job because they don't kill him. So they beat him with rocks and he's laying in the street outside the city. And then eventually he gets up and walks back into the city. Preaching a false gospel of self-righteous legalism about halfway through Acts, Paul starts hearing about other preachers that are preaching, yeah, you have to believe in Christ to be saved, but all the Jewish laws in the Old Testament, you still have to follow those. If you don't follow those, you can't be saved. And Paul's like, that doesn't sound right. That's not what I understood from my encounter with Christ and other things. So he goes to Jerusalem to meet the elders and the apostles, the people who had been with Jesus in the Gospels, and ask them, so this is what I've been preaching, but now I'm hearing something else. Have I been preaching the wrong thing? Do I have to change what I'm saying? And the apostles say to him, no, what you're preaching is correct. This other thing that we have to also follow the law, that's false. That's been tried for thousands of years and it didn't work. We, can't, we couldn't do it. Jesus fulfilled the law. We don't have to do it. We're no longer under that. So, God brings him safely through to prevent him from changing and preaching that. Brings him safely through being beaten with rods in Philippi. A mob's attempt to beat him to death in Jerusalem. They drag him out of a building. They start beating him. And it gets so severe that a detachment of Roman soldiers have to come in and like wedge their way through the crowd and get him. And they say the violence of the crowd is so severe that the soldiers actually had to pick him up and carry him out of the crowd like a child. Because they were afraid if they just tried to walk him out and escort him, the crowd would overpower them, drag them away, and beat Paul to death. So they have to actually carry him as they're surrounded to protect him and get him out of the mob. God brings him safely through a trial before the Jewish ruling council that a guilty verdict would have resulted in his execution. A plot to kill him in Jerusalem. Plots to kill him are an ongoing theme in the book of Acts. And then last week being shipwrecked in a storm, this week being bitten by a poisonous snake. All things God has brought Paul safely through. All things that could have killed him or derailed what he was doing in various ways. But this is not these are not the most important thing that Paul was brought through by God. You might look at this list if you're sitting here as a believer and you're thinking, what are some things God has brought me safely through? And it's like, well, uh, no one's ever tried to kill me. At least that I know of. If they did, I guess they didn't do a good job. So God's never brought me safely through that. No one's ever tried to stone me. Mobs have never attempted to drag me out of buildings and beat me to death. Uh, I've never been shipwrecked. Never been beaten with rods as a punishment by the Roman government. Uh, no one's ever attempted to worship me, so I haven't had to deal with that one. You might look at this and say, wow, this is really cool, but this doesn't really apply to me. I can't really relate to any of this. But there is something else. The most important thing Paul brought was brought through by God. And if you're in this room and you're a Christian, then you also have been brought through the same thing. The specifics look different, but it's the same thing. Acts 9. This is where, in Acts 9, Paul has not yet encountered Christ. He does not yet believe, and he's persecuting Christians. So, 
Before he became a Christian, he was called Saul. So these verses, it says Saul, not Paul. Same guy, his name changed. So a little confusing, but when you read Saul, just remember it is Paul. So Acts 9. Falling to the ground, Saul heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. So this is where Paul was traveling to foreign cities, enraged, trying to kill Christians, trying to get them sentenced to death, trying to make them do things they shouldn't have done so that they could be accused. And on that road, Jesus appears to Paul supernaturally, this blinding light, and then speaks to him out of this light and says, what are you doing? And Paul's like, who are you? What's going on? He says, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. You're persecuting me. I am the Son of God. I am alive. Rise and enter the city, you'll be told what to do. So then Paul gets up, he's blind from the light, is led into the city, goes to a house. God goes to another guy, a Christian in the city, and says, hey, you have to go to this house on this street, Paul, Saul is there, and you have to go and tell him these things. So this guy goes, comes to Saul and says, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then that happens, Saul gets his vision back, is filled with the Spirit, and then uh, right after that, gets some food to eat because he hadn't eaten in a few days, rests a little bit. And then once that's done, he gets up and goes out and starts proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues, saying he is the Son of God. The man who hated Christians and was persecuting them and wanted them dead is now the man standing in the temple court saying, Jesus is the Son of God. Actually, everything they said was true. I was wrong. And I believe it, and I'm proclaiming it. The greatest thing that God brought Paul through was from that state of hatred of God, enemy of God, working against God, to that state of believing, of being a friend, of being a child of God. For those of us in the room who are believers, that same thing has happened to us. Probably not in such a dramatic, supernatural fashion. I never saw a light from heaven, never audibly heard the voice of Jesus speaking to me, never went blind from it. But, Jesus encountered me at some point in my life and said to me, not in those physical words, Jesse, what are you doing? You're persecuting me. You think you're doing right or you don't think you're doing right and you just don't care, but you're actually persecuting me. But look at what I did for you. I'm not here to destroy you because of the evil you're doing against me. I'm here to save you. I'm not here just to say you've done wrong. That's very naughty. I'm here to say you've done evil. It's horrible. The punishment for that ultimately is death. But I died, so you don't have to. If you're here in the room this morning and you're not a Christian, whether this is the first time you've ever heard this, whether you've heard it and you just think, ah, it's interesting, it's not for me, or whether you've heard it and you think, ah, I'm not really sure what I think about this, I'm still kind of feeling it out, know that God can bring you safely through. His desire is to bring you safely through. His desire is not in his justice to strike you down. His desire was to strike Christ down so that you don't have to be. His desire is for you to experience his love, not his punishment. And just like we saw with Paul and Acts, there's nothing you have to do for that. It's not like you have to come to church a certain number of times or know a certain amount of the Bible or take a certain class or do anything like that. All it is is believing that, what, that Jesus was who he says he was, God and man, that he did die, that he rose from the dead, and that in doing so, he took on the punishment that you, that you deserve. Now I say that's all it is. That's a big thing. There's a lot there. And that's a process. But that's what it is. Don't think that it's anything else. Certainly there are other things that follow from that. There are things that happen as we believe and as we're transformed by God. But there's nothing else. There's nothing you have to do. Just like the sick people who came to Paul didn't say, well, I'm sick, but I at least kind of cleaned myself up and took a little medicine first. Or I brought you this gift because I heard you guys are out of food. No, they just came. They just wanted something and they saw Paul could provide it. Just come to Jesus. He can provide it. You don't have to bring him anything. He's like Publius. He owns everything. There's nothing you can bring him that he doesn't already have. There's nothing he wants from you just you. Paul has been brought safely through. We have been brought safely through. 
Now to close, we're going to look at a few verses from Psalm 23. This idea of being brought safely through and led by God. You may have thought of this. So Psalm 23, the famous psalm that starts, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. So God is the shepherd in this psalm. And a few verses from the middle of the psalm, it says, The Lord leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Where do the paths of God's righteousness lead? They lead through the valley of the shadow of death. It's so easy for us to think like the native people did. Oh, a God. A God doesn't get harmed. A God doesn't have misfortune happen to them. It's easy for us to think as Christians, oh, I'm a Christian now. God is for me. He's God. He's so powerful. He loves me infinitely, more than I could ever be loved. In the healthiest dating relationship, the healthiest marriage, the healthiest family, the healthiest friendship, to have love that's so great and so worthwhile and something God has given and wants for us in any of those relationships, God's love for us is more and deeper and better. And those others aren't bad. Those are great. They're part of God's design. But as we enjoy those, remember that what, God, what we have with God is even more than those things. It doesn't diminish those. It just makes what God gives so much greater. But that's not how it is. We think no harm will come to us. But the paths of God's righteousness lead through the valley of the shadow of death. But the last verse, in that, it says, I will fear no evil. And it doesn't say because evil isn't there or because I can't be injured or harmed in any way. It says, because you are with me. Jesus is with us. He's the one leading us. And notice it doesn't say he leads us into the valley of the shadow of death. He leads us through it. We go in and we come out the other side. If you've ever been hiking or traveling in places with mountains and valleys, you know valleys come in all shapes and sizes. Some are really deep. Some aren't very deep. Some are really long. Some aren't. It's the same way with the paths God leads us on. Sometimes the valley of the shadow of death that we walk through is not that deep and not that long. It's short. It's not that severe. Sometimes it's incredibly severe. Sometimes it can last your entire life. But God is with you in that. Jesus is walking with you. And don't forget in that, that we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, not death itself. Jesus Christ walked through the valley of death. We encounter death's shadow, but Christ is there. Christ encountered death itself. Christ came to the valley of death and he died. And he rose up from the grave and he walked out the other side of that valley. And so now we will never have to walk the valley of death. We will die physically someday unless Jesus returns before the end of our life. But we know that Christ is waiting for us. We know that we'll be with him forever. And we know that we walk through the valley and we encounter the shadow because Jesus encountered death and took that. And that's not to say life isn't difficult, it is. That's not to say there aren't things that are extremely painful, extremely sorrowful. That it's hard when things last. You might have something that you've dealt with for years or decades and you think, God, why has this not changed? And God's response is many faceted to that. But part of that is, I am with you. You're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, but don't think that I'm aloof or that I don't understand or I don't care. I've been there. I died. I died on the cross. I died a more horrible death than most people ever will. I understand pain. I understand sorrow. I understand suffering. I understand abandonment. But I rose from the dead, and I'm walking with you. And I'm leading you in this path, but I'm leading you through. And it's taking a lot longer than you want. But the end is coming. Like a child on a road trip. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? As the adult, it's annoying because you know the trip to Duluth is two hours long. And you know you'll be there in two hours, and you're halfway through. To a child, two hours is an eternity. It's like, oh, we're not there yet. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Different perspective. The same with us and God. As we're walking through the valley of the shadow, when you're in the valley and all you can see is shadow, it feels like it lasts forever. God's perspective, he can see the end and he sees that the end is coming. All right. As Peter said, today is a communion Sunday. So we...
order of our service. Usually we do singing first, preaching at the end. Preaching just happened. Now we do singing and communion. So Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, before he went to the cross, before he went on trial, he was having a last meal with his disciples who had been with him for a couple of years, and they're eating. And in the middle of the meal, he takes a loaf of bread, stands up, breaks it in half, and says, we're eating this bread, but as I break this bread, remember that this represents my body, which is about to be broken for you on the cross. Eat this bread and remember that. And then a little later in the meal, he takes a cup of wine, picks it up, and he says, this wine that we're drinking represents my blood, which is about to be shed, about to be poured out for sin, for your sins, for the world's sins. As you drink it, think about that. So now, we're going to have a time, the band's going to come up, they're going to play about four songs, and any time during that, you can feel free, if you so desire, to come down and take communion, to take uh, a little piece of bread, uh, crackers, and we have wine or grape juice, and to take that. And as we do that, we don't just do it because we're hungry, we do it in remembrance of Jesus' death. Remembering his body that was broken, remembering his blood that was shed. So at Hiawatha, we practice what we call open communion, which means you don't have to be a member of Hiawatha Church. You don't have to be a member of any church to take communion. The one thing we do ask, because it's the one thing Scripture asks, is that you are a Christian, that you're a believer. And you might think, well, that's weird. Like, why does that matter? And the reason is, when you take communion, what you're doing is you are declaring with your actions I believe this to be true. I believe Jesus Christ did die for sin, that he rose from the dead, that his sacrifice is sufficient. And if you don't actually believe that, if you're not at that point, then when you come up and do it, you're declaring to God, I believe this, while actually believing and acting in such a way that you deny it. So now you're bringing judgment on yourself because you're saying to God, I'm participating in this thing that says something, but I don't actually believe that thing. So we're not saying it to exclude you, to make you feel uncomfortable or anything like that. We're saying it to protect you so that you don't come and bring judgment on yourself in that. But there will also be people up front to pray for you if anyone wants prayer, and that's for anyone. That's not just if you're a Christian. That's not just if you're a member of Hiawatha Church. We could all use prayer. I'll take all the prayer I can get. So if that's something that... Uh, you would like or would benefit you, feel free to do that too. And we'll be singing too. So if you don't come up, feel free to just stand or sit, sing or listen. I'll pray and invite the band up. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you, Jesus, that you bring us safely through. That you were brought safely through the cross, that you were brought through death and rose from the dead, that you walked through the valley of death and you came out the other side. Thank you, that though you are just, you are able to justify us 